Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We are speaking here on August 19th, 2022. In 2021, 16 people died while in the custody of the New York City Department of Correction. Already this year, in 2022, through mid-August when we're speaking, there have been 12 such deaths. These most horrific outcomes are part of a correction system where roughly 5,500 people are incarcerated in city jails right now. That's down from the 22,000 plus in 1991, but it's up from under 4,000 in 2020. Violence among the incarcerated and between incarcerated individuals and correction staff has been rising for a number of years, even as the census in city jails has declined. It has been well chronicled that conditions in the jail complex on Rikers Island, which is slated for closure by 2027, are inhumane and deplorable and dangerous for both the incarcerated and correction staff. The court-appointed monitor overseeing the jail complex has determined that the Department of Correction is, quote, trapped in a state of persistent dysfunctionality, end quote, with, quote, imminent risk of harm to incarcerated individuals and staff, end quote. Those excerpts from the monitor report were in op-ed by one of my guests today on the need, in her words and many others, including my other guests today, that the Rikers Island Jail Complex should be brought under federal receivership. We'll discuss that in just a moment. But what other than that can be done to address the crisis on Rikers Island and in city jails and the many aspects of the criminal justice system that are related and affected and affecting what's happening on Rikers Island? And how did we get here? Joining me today to discuss it all in many related pieces of the public safety and criminal justice systems are two very experienced individuals with a lot to say. Elizabeth Glazer is the founder of Vital City, a new policy venture. Most recently, she also served as the director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice from 2014 until 2020, where she led the strategy to produce a dramatic reduction in the city's jail population and create community-led safety strategies. She previously oversaw the criminal justice agencies in New York State as the governor's deputy secretary for public safety. She's also a former federal prosecutor. Vincent Schiraldi is also with us today. He's an adjunct professor at the Columbia School of Social Work and senior fellow at the Columbia Justice Lab. He previously founded the policy think tank, the Justice Policy Institute, was director of juvenile corrections in Washington, D.C., commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation from 2010 to 2014, and was the commissioner of the New York City Department of Correction for the final tumultuous months of the de Blasio administration. He was also a senior policy advisor to the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. All right. Thank you both for being here. Elizabeth Glazer and Vincent Chiraldi, really appreciate you taking the time. You are both calling for federal receivership of Rikers Island. Let's jump into that in a moment. But thank you very much for being here. How are you? Great. Thanks, Ben, for having me, Vinny, all of us. <laughs> well, Ben, thanks. So, uh, Liz, let's let's start with you um, and we'll, we'll work backwards here a bit. But right now, you know, sort of big picture, set the stage here. Why are you calling for federal receiver, receivership of the Rikers Island jail complex? 
Sure. Uh, it's actually pretty simple. I think we're at the end of the road, uh, meaning it's really puzzling why a situation this horrific is not on the front pages of every single New York City paper every single day. It's as if we've become numb to these crises because this is not normal. It's not even within the range of normal. So some years ago in 2015, as you said, a federal monitor was put in place because the conditions of violence were so bad, they were unconstitutional. Today, we are well, well, well beyond the levels of violence that we were when a monitor was put in because those levels were unconstitutional. So for us to get back to unconstitutional levels of violence would be uh, a victory. And what the monitor has said is that essentially everything is broken. Management is broken. Discipline is broken. Security is broken. It is impossible even to get doors on cells. Um, and so it feels as if we need a different kind of power than even the federal monitor can bring to bear because there have been court order after court order after court order that the city has been unable to comply with. Uh, and whether that's because of existing regulations, rules, collective bargaining agreements is still murky. What if receiver would do, which is also court appointed, is the receiver would have powers conferred on them and regulated by the court and agreed to by the parties that could cut through uh, some of the major obstacles to actually having an enduring fix uh, to these horrific problems. Vinny, add on there. No. Liz gave some powerful data, and I and I I, I want to agree with her on a number of things. One is I, I think we may be approaching crisis fatigue in that more than one person a day is getting stabbed and slashed at Rikers Island, and we're not hearing about it. Whereas that was a pretty rare thing five years ago when we were bad enough to require a constant, you know, a, a, a unconstitutional finding by the court and a monitor. So we're exponentially worse than that now. And it's starting, to, the coverage is starting to wane on it and the alarm is starting to wane on it because I think people feel like they're chicken little yelling the sky's gonna fall. So let me, to avoid that, let me, let me just talk about one or two people. I mean, someone died this year at Rikers because they choked on an orange when no one was in, the living unit to give them the Heimlich maneuver or, 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 or CPR. There was no correctional officer where they were incarcerated, which is unheard of. And what happened was the other incarcerated people made enough noise and agitated enough to let, to be let out of the living unit to bring the person to, 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 uh, to the medical clinic. Uh, that's that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to have a correctional officer to handle that stuff. Um, someone else died this year who missed nearly 100 medical appointments. In April, nearly 16,000 medical appointments were missed by incarcerated people. And then in May, 
the Department of Correction changed the way it counted missed appointments. So they, they quantified fewer than 200 missed appointments. That's not the way this gets fixed. This gets fixed by bringing people a medical appointments. This gets fixed by having enough staff. This gets fixed by reducing the population. And unfortunately, I think this gets fixed by having the federal court take it over because there's too many obstacles to all those other things I just said. Say more about what a federal receiver actually would do here. Um, when we get into specifics around things like staffing, um, a, a change in that um, who runs the jails completely alters the collective bargaining agreement. Um, that seems to be one of the top items on the list here. It gets into obviously very tricky and delicate territory around the correction officers union and the safety of the correction officers. There's clearly been a huge problem with sick outs. Also officers uh, very reasonably afraid of for their own safety uh, issues around COVID real challenges, but also um, horrific problems related to a lack of staffing. Um, that seems to be sort of top of the list is getting that in order. Uh, the new mayor, Eric Adams, of course, and his, his commissioner of correction, Luis Molina, had talked about that and, and been trying to make some progress on that. But in terms of what a federal receiver would do around staffing, what would that look like? And then what are some of the other big steps that a federal receiver would make sure would happen there? Uh, Vinny, why don't you continue on, on that? since uh, you were fairly recently the correction commissioner. Right. And I think it's important to note, by the way, that this is not a comment on Mayor Adams or on Commissioner Molina. I suggested to City Hall that we create a receivership when I was commissioner. Uh, and, and that might have meant I lost my job. It probably would have meant that the receiver would have taken over and I would no longer have been commissioner. But once I, I sussed out all the obstacles in the way, I, I didn't believe uh, that... I or anybody else could do it, and I still believe that. Um, so just a couple of examples, I think, would, would be helpful rather than giving you a big, long list. Staff have unlimited sick leaves, and they were not you know, afraid to just look us in the eye when they were perfectly healthy, and we said, you need to go from here to over there and relieve one of your colleagues on a triple, or just look us straight in the eye and say, no, I got diarrhea, or I have a heart palpitation, and leave work and you know, uh, access their unlimited sick leave. On Columbus Day, for example, we sent a bus to the Queens Courthouse because it was full of correctional officers, but nobody was there because court was closed. Seven people dialed 911 when the bus arrived and left in an ambulance saying that they, could no long, they couldn't work because we were wanting them to come onto Rikers Island to relieve their colleagues. So there's a number of things that could be done. One is you could say, all right, what's the national standard on giving people sick leave in correctional systems? I'm pretty sure it's not unlimited and just limited. Uh, if it's 30 days, it's 30 days. If it's 45 days, it's 45 days. So that a quarter of the staff isn't out sick at any given point in time. We could say that that state law and that local law that require all supervisory staff, all captains, all assistant wardens, all deputy wardens, all wardens, Anybody wearing a uniform who's a supervisor must have come up through the New York City Department of Correction. They must have started as a correctional officer. We could say that just doesn't meet national standards. They might be the greatest warden in the world in Westchester County, but the New York City Department of Correction can't hire that person. And so 
Commissioner Malone has done this kind of odd workaround to that where he has civilians kind of supervising no one and he supervises every warden uh, and you know that's clever but it's it's not the way it should be you should have a uniformed officer that you hire that's a supervisor who's the best person you could find supervising those people below them and that's not what's happening now and on and on Liz mentioned the uh, the doors the 500 cell doors were broken when I took over the department and the plan to fix them was going to take three years. Like cell doors have to close in correctional facilities. You can't wait three years, but because of all the procurement law that's in the way, you couldn't get it done. This is a damn emergency and we need to treat it like emergency. We need to think about how you'd feel if your son or daughter were even incarcerated there or working there. And what would you want done in that situation? Many people are dedicated employees who come to work every day, came to work every day during the pandemic, and they're being screwed by their colleagues who are abusing sick leave. And that needs to be fixed, and it cannot be fixed using conventional means. Mm-hmm. I would, uh, I'm wondering if I could just add to that quickly. Um, I think uh, my own view is I've come to the receivership idea reluctantly, mainly because because it is an incredibly powerful tool, incredibly powerful, and you need to have the right person and you need to, all of those things. Um, but I don't see another option. I don't see what else could cut through all the different hurdles that stand in the way of having some enduring fix. And when I look across the country and Vinny and I put on a you know, series of panels a couple of months ago in which we showed a couple of case studies of other people who have used receivers. And Chicago seems like the most similar to New York, um, a, a facility that was in deep crisis uh, with many of the same problems that we have of people not coming to work, of management failing, of high levels of brutality. Uh, And they put in a receiver and the receiver worked with the union. It's a Chicago, also big union town uh, in order to utterly revamp uh, how it is who it is was hired, how they were hired, and most importantly, how staff was supported and trained in a way um, that raised the level of professionalism and permitted the officers to do their job uh, in a way that uh, that was safe uh, and uh, and you know, respected their dignity and the dignity of people who are incarcerated. So it is definitely possible uh, for changes to happen. And the problem is without those kinds of powers, I think as Vinny has sort of laid out, you have this kind of tiptoeing around uh, the current collective bargaining agreement rules and regulations that mean you end up having these kind of crazy workarounds that could collapse in a minute if the union is upset, if personnel changes, if the implicit agreements uh, fall apart. And none of that was created by the current administration. It probably wasn't created by the last administration. It's Mm -hmm. decades of, you know, unions kind of 
engaging in what they're supposed to do, fighting for better stuff for their members. And nobody really on the other side of that. It kind of, you know, when the city's doing well, it's easy to give stuff away to unions. So they did. Mm-hmm. Are there ways in which um, either of you think about what um, some of a renegotiation of that would look like? Is that, um, you know, something where it's almost impossible to imagine a drastically overhauled uh, labor contract where part of what I want to ask you is, are there things that could be offered to the correction union to um, help them get there on some of the things that seem to be barriers to progress, but that could, you know, be beneficial to their members, obviously, first and foremost, higher pay, for example. But um, are there are there ways that that those discussions should be on the table regardless of a federal receivership? Obviously, a federal receivership would change everything. But um, are, are there are there ways, you know, that 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 has been broached that you know of? Are there are there discussions to be had around things that could be changed to, you know, make the correction union want to come to the table and really have some of these discussions? In my view, if you had a receivership and you began to show, and I've been thinking a lot about this, Ben, and you began to show how much better a system could be if it didn't allow for such abuses, the case to be made for it would be much, much better. So, for example, in, in Chicago, as, as Liz mentioned, uh, one of the things that was controversial and the union actually went and argued it in court was to rewrite the position descriptions for the, the correctional officers. They call them youth counselors in juvenile facilities and to uh, require an uh, associate's degree for the job, whereas before it only had required a, a high school diploma or GED. And now, now that's you know well accepted by the unions. There it was it was controversial at first. They fought it in court, but the judge ruled for the receiver, uh, and and they saw how it got better. In my view, if you had a more reasonable uh, set of policies around absenteeism, AWOLs, uh, promotions of you know good supervisors, it would prove itself. And during the course of the receivership. Uh, it, it would be easier to negotiate for it. Right now, it's scary because, you know, you've got something, why would you want to give it up? Uh, but I think there's a deal to be made there. But right now, the union holds all the cards, and why would they deal? Mm-hmm. And in terms of getting some of this other stuff, like fixing the doors handled, short of a federal receivership, how, how can some of this uh, not happen? How can there not be more, uh, even on the medical appointments, it seems like there's things that the city government should be doing um, that could be done, regardless, again, of the union contract, regardless, again, even of um, procurement rules. There's enough of an emergency here, obviously, probably to declare some sort of local emergency and and get those doors fixed. what's, What's the problem here? What's holding this up? In Ben, this is exactly the conversation I had with City Hall, and I can see it happening now. Every one of these things can be fixed individually, maybe even two or three of them. It's just the whole sea of them that's the problem. So, for example, um, one of the things that the commissioner is touting is how stabbings and slashings in the juvenile 
facility, it's called RNBC, have dropped substantially. But he doesn't mention when he's testifying is that the stabbings and slashings have gone up in all the other facilities so much that when you look at the whole thing, there's been a 40% increase in stabbings and slashings versus last year. And last year was terrible. So yeah, you can focus on this one thing here, that one thing there, but it really is whack-a-mole. And the union's gotten very used to counting backwards from how long this commission is going to be around. If we play rope-a-dope, if we dribble out the ball, this commission will be gone. A new commissioner will come in with a whole other set of priorities, and we'll still you know, be here uh, negotiating for these kinds of things for our members. So, yes. I would add just one thing, which mm-hmm. is we've patched here and we've patched there. Uh, over and over and over again, we've done it with five consent decrees, eight mayors, 23 commissioners. And what the monitor has now laid out just so starkly in a kind of legal document that will make your hair curl. I have never read something uh, as powerful as this and as direct as this. But what he is saying is that the department has utterly collapsed There is no management. There is no oversight. And everything flows from that. If you can't get people to the right posts at the right time, uh, then people who are incarcerated choke on oranges. Mm -hmm. All of those things. and, And if management and oversight and discipline is utterly failed, then yes, you'll have stabbings and slashings that are well above the rate of stabbings and slashings that you had even in the 1990s when things were also horrific. Mm. So I, I think the reason why I have come to a receiver is that I think really what the monitor is saying and really what all of these stories day after day are showing us is that the department must be rebuilt from the ground up. Now, now, Liz, stay with that for a second, though, and Vinny, jump in here as well. Part of the reasoning seemingly behind not going quite to receivership is that there is a new administration. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure wise or not wise, but Mayor Adams has said, give us some time. They've presented a plan. Um, people have criticized the plan. There's all sorts of questions about implementation of the plan, obviously, as you get at the capacity of the department, uh, these snowballing effects of violence, absenteeism among staff, dangerous facilities uh, and and onward. Um, But it seems like the some of the idea here was the mayor saying, give my administration a little time. There's never been a mayor. Uh, you know, like me before, uh, he's the second black mayor of New York City. He's talked about being arrested. He's talked about, you know, the people on Rikers Island look like me. Give me a chance here. Uh, at the same time, he thinks seemingly that some of the uh, somewhat tougher approach that the city was starting to take with the correction union uh, last year, and you were part of this, uh, Vinny, um, you know, needed to be dialed back a bit to sort of bring down some of the temperature, apparently. Um, but there's questions around whether that's the right strategy or not. Uh, so, Liz, what do you think about that idea, though, of a new mayor and a new commissioner and giving them a little bit of time? Is that just um, 
wish casting. I mean, you know, they just came in in a situation that you just described and it's really just untenable in your opinion. And it just needs, you know, unfortunately, there isn't the opportunity for a new mayor to really wrap his arms around this. Is is that basically the thinking or what do you think of, of that yeah. sort of time that's been given? So both the, the, the monitor in language that then was adopted by the U.S. attorney in court and by the court said we can't have a situation in which every time a new administration comes in, we hit reset. But then, of course, the court did hit recess mm -hmm. that we're going to be waiting until November. And what I would say is that under normal circumstances, it is absolutely reasonable to say it's a new guy. Maybe he can fix it. Who knows? But I would trust but verify, meaning I would say, uh, show us what is causing the problem and what power do you actually need to fix it? What the administration has said is it's different with us. We have complete power to fix this. This is that. And that is the argument, I think, that won the day in court. But it is very, very unclear. Just think about this kind of crazy Rube Goldberg um, way that they have tried to figure out to fix the hole in management by appointing a, a civilian wardens, essentially uniformed wardens, but they're not on the same level of the hierarchy. They have to report to different people. So, it, so it's a workaround. Um, it's not a fix. And so I, that would be fantastic if in fact they had the power and they had a new idea and they were going to be able to cut through it all. But the numbers are showing something very, very different, even since May, you know, since the last court, court mm -hmm. appearance, stabbings and slashings are way up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and as both of you are getting at the idea that this is being treated as something less than a sort of full blown emergency on a daily basis is is just not borne out by the by the facts here. Before I come back to you, Vinny, Liz, let me just say uh, going back to sort of a little bit of this conversation around short of a federal receivership, even something like getting the doors fixed, that seems like a problem of sort of attention at City Hall. That seems like the a problem around, you know, the right deputy mayors and the right city agencies needing to get together to do the necessary procurement repairs and make it a priority, an emergency priority to get out on Rikers and get the doors fixed on a reasonable uh, timeline. Is that the essence of some of these problems is the lack of real attention at City Hall and bringing together the right people to say this has to be priority number one for a few months to get some of the structural issues fixed here? For sure. There are an array of problems, and some of them are directly within the city's control. Uh, so procurement, which is notoriously difficult in the city, um, getting an emergency order, uh, trying to work on the supply chains, all of those things I think do require coordinated, constant attention. Somebody who wakes up with a stomach ache every morning just thinking about that. And the city has put together a little task force of internal um, 
you know, leaders, uh, I think, to try and break through some of those things. And that's great. Um, I think the problems, unfortunately, are not just that. So and it just because a receiver is put in place, it doesn't mean city government fades away. So the receiver will bring the additional powers needed to cut through whatever those problems are. But the city has to put its shoulder to the wheel, too, on the problems that are within its power. Um, and presumably the receiver would orchestrate all of that and make sure all those pieces were moving at the same time with the urgency that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And Ben, I, I, I want to just add something to what Please. we said. You know, it's easy to sit here, you know, comfortably on, on your talk show and talk about this being a priority for the city. It's never been a priority for the city. And it's really unlikely that it will be a priority for the city. I, I, you know, I know that that's what the mayor's arguing. And, you know, in bits and spurts, of course, it has been over time. I think arguably, if you look at the last five mayors, probably Mayor de Blasio did more on this than anybody, just in, in that you've got the city's commitment to close Rikers Island, cited four jails in the most politically active and expensive real estate in the country, and got $8 billion plus put in to build those jails. Conditions still deteriorate during that time, but that was about as focused as we've been on this subject, and it's still deteriorated. This is the kind of issue that inevitably drifts from people's attention because most people don't have a loved one locked up there or a loved one working there. Most people never, ever go there. It's not like schools. It's not like the subways. It's not like crime. It's a, it's a, it's a niche that is very, very difficult for elected and appointed officials to focus on over time. And that's not just me saying that. Talk to any corrections commissioner for the last yeah. 20 years, and they'll say the same thing. I, I, I actually, you know, I wouldn't really argue with you about, um, you know, Mayor de Blasio's efforts and commitments. Obviously, there's a discussion to be had about urgency and about, uh, you know, implementation of steps that were announced and, and a, a number of other things, but in terms of the, the bigger picture there, but um, where that meets this idea of most people don't go there or uh, getting city hall's attention to it on a regular basis. Um, the, the mayor didn't go there for more than four years. Mayor de Blasio didn't go to Rikers Island. We wrote about this at Gotham Gazette. It, it became you know, a perpetuating conversation, even amidst the COVID crisis that that heightened, obviously, all sorts of um, challenges and issues. And there were emergency steps taken to release some people, uh, which got the population on Rikers to the lowest it's been uh, ever, I believe, uh, or at least in, in many decades. Um, what happened there, uh, Vinny, in terms of the mayor's attention on Rikers Island, getting him to actually visit, I believe, in September of, of 2021. Um, he didn't still didn't talk to incarcerated people and, and you know, sort of got a, a lot of flack for that. Um, what happened there and how does that speak to sort of the um, the challenge of getting the mayor's attention on this crisis? So, you know, any mayor, I've been commissioner of essentially three different departments all of which were sort of stepchildren departments, juvenile justice in D.C., probation in New York, and correction for a brief time in New York also. And as that sort of tier two, right, I'm not the NYPD commissioner, I'm not the chancellor of education. Those are tier one spots. 
um, you know you are constantly fighting for attention. And when I ran Juby in uh, D.C., Mayor Williams visited for the first time, and this was in his, the end of his third term. Uh, when I ran probation in New York City, uh, Mayor um, Bloomberg visited for the first time. And uh, when I ran correction, you just have to be toilet paper on the shoe. You have to be used to being annoying to people, which is why I don't think this is ever going to get the kind of attention it needs absent to receivership to sort of bring that back around. Uh, because at a certain point, they just they just fade you out. You know, I mean, there's only so much energy I'm putting into this. And, and to his credit, I think Mayor um, Adams has gone several times. And I think that's great. When he toured when I was there and I thought he was authentic about it. I am not doubting this man. I am neither doubting his commitment nor his abilities. I think he really cares. We might disagree about how to do it, but mm. I think he really cares. I just think that's going to fade. And I think all those obstacles I laid out are profound in a way that he doesn't quite realize it yet. You know, you don't become mayor of New York City unless you think very highly of yourself. You don't become commissioner of the New York City Department of Correction unless you think you're really good at it. And it's hard to come in in six months and say, we should let somebody else take it over. It sounds like Liz and I are saying they should take it over because they're better and smarter and more decent than you. And I'm not. And can I just add before you do, I'll just say you're getting at this, I think, a little. Mayor Adams seems frustrated with with both of you, among others who are calling for the federal receivership. I think you're sort of getting that a little because I don't know that he's called you out by name particularly, but obviously you're two prominent voices who've been calling for this. And he's sort of saying, hey, I, I'm seeing all these people who they were in charge, you yeah. know, and, and now they're saying, uh, uh, go ahead, Liz, what were you going to say? But I was saying it then, Ben. So yeah, I yeah. Would have. It's not that I'm saying it now. I was saying it then. Understood. He fixed with conventional. I can see how unbelievably annoying that would be if you're the mayor and just came in. And it's like, well, what did the last bums do? You know, I, I can totally see this. But I guess what I would say is two things. The way in which it's now being framed, and maybe this is more by the press than by the administration, I don't know, um, is a competition to fight back the receiver as opposed to a competition to make conditions decent. And in that line, if it's a competition to make conditions decent and to reduce violence, the receiver is your friend and ally to the administration. The receiver is not your adversary. And we've seen in, in both receivership contexts and also in consent decree contexts where the, the incumbent administration uses the powers that the receiver has or the monitor has to implement the reforms that they're unable to do by themselves. And so if I were the administration, I would try to do a bit of jujitsu here and welcome the receiver uh, as a partner in all the efforts that are currently underway. And there are ways to structure that. Um, commissioner stays where the receiver and the current administration work together, where when you work out what the order is that confers the powers on the receiver, it's shaped in a way that, you know, the city isn't shorn of its sovereignty. Um, so I think it's an enormous opportunity for 
the administration to be a hero and to pull something out of the fire that is has been in the fire for decades. It wasn't. It's not a receivership, but but um, you're reminding me of sort of the press conference that the mayor had with then HUD Secretary Ben Carson around uh, NYCHA and and sort of spun it, uh, you know, as as something of a, a help to the city and that they were going to, you know, agree on the next NYCHA chair and CEO and, and so forth. And it's given me a little bit of a flashback to that. Was that what were you going to jump in on something else, Liz, a minute ago? Did I? No, that's Send you what, in a different direction. Okay, good. So no, it, was, was, it was it was what I was going to Okay. All right. So <laughs> there's so much I want to get to with you too, but I'm not going to keep you too too much longer. I'm speaking here with Elizabeth Glazer, the founder of Vital City, a new policy venture. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, uh, Liz. Uh, she's also the former director of the New York City's uh, Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice from 2014 until 2020. I'm also speaking with Vincent Chiraldi adjunct professor at the Columbia uh, School of Social Work and senior fellow at the Columbia Justice Lab, previously a commissioner of the Department of Probation in New York City and of the Department of Correction in the final months of the de Blasio administration. Um, okay, other uh, other things that we haven't mentioned here in brief in terms of, of the roots of the problems at Rikers, one of the let me say this, take it in a different direction if you want. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this persistent point that people are making. Now, some of them are are not necessarily good faith actors because they don't want to see these new jails built. But um, there's a persistent point about the dysfunction at Rikers and that building new jails is not going to solve that. Um, is there something to that? Uh, are there any other pieces of this puzzle that we haven't gotten to that are really big uh, pieces that that you want to mention here before we talk about a couple of other things? Uh, Vinny, you want to jump in first? Yeah, they're absolutely right about that. I mean, when I when I ran juvenile justice, juvenile corrections in Washington, D.C., it was a sort of miniature version of what's going on in New York City. We had a very, very brutal, dysfunctional system that was had a consent decree for 20 years and was actually a pending motion to put my department into receivership. When I took over, I was the 20th director of that department in 20 years. So it was chaos, chaos, chaos. And part of my job was to reduce the population, close the facility and build a new facility. And right from the beginning, we knew that if we just closed the old facility and built a new one, that the, the culture of violence and chaos would, would migrate. And so Part of the reason I took this job was I was hoping to stay on, of course, and I totally respect the mayor's ability to pick who he wants, and I'm not like bitter about that, but I was hoping to stay on all the way till the closure of Rikers and the opening of the new facility, because the big job is to change the culture of violence, train staff up to run a functional and, and, and really run the best system in the country. I think that can happen. And I've been to jail systems that are peaceful, that are uh, focus on incentives for the people who are locked up, that program people extensively. And that's what that's what I was aiming for. But a new building won't do that all by itself. It really does need to have this culture changed and fixed. Otherwise, we can expect Rikers times four. Mm-hmm. Liz? Yeah, totally agree. I mean, the whole point is not to create many Rikers uh, in four different facilities. The plan uh, rested on three things, reduce the population, change the culture, a euphemism for reduce the violence uh, 
train, provide staff with decent training, uh, provide people incarcerated with programming and build the buildings. Physical environment can make an enormous difference. Um, just think in your own life how different it is to live in a dark apartment or a sunny apartment. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, but more than that, in the current facilities, the walls have become weapons because it's falling apart and people are making shanks from plexiglass, et cetera. So on some very basic level, something different has to be done. Um but yes, culture needs to be changed in advance of that. Um, and uh, these two things have to go together. Mm-hmm. Vinny, is there, um, you know, this, this might be a little easier uh, for you to, for you to answer than Liz. Um, but is there, is, is there a big mistake that either you made or, or you see the city as having made over these last few years when things really devolved, um, there was obviously the, um, you know, the COVID crisis, which disrupted everything and, and turned, you know, so many things upside down in such terrible ways. And obviously jails are going to be, uh, you know, potentially the most challenging place, uh, to deal with, with a fast spreading pandemic like this. Um, but is there is there a mistake that was made either during your tenure? Um, maybe it was dropping the the suit that the administration finally filed against the uh, off correction officers union around the sick outs. But um, is is there a mistake or two that you'd point to that you really you know think have valuable learning lessons in them from from this last period? I kind of wish there was. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you some mistakes in a second, but I think really the, the way to think about this is more a long series of neglect by city leaders, including commissioners, uh, not one mistake. There's no home runs in this one. It's only been a bunch of singles and doubles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I mean, the city has about 7,500 uniformed officers uh, guarding about 5,500 incarcerated people. No one has that. No one. The Federal Bureau of Prisons has about a third as many correctional officers as incarcerated people. So no one's got the, the, the kind of ratio we have. And I think it's allowed us to get very lazy in terms of how we manage. You couldn't have this. You couldn't have 25% of your staff out sick if you had a regular uh, staff to incarcerated person ratio. You'd have to manage that problem. But because we threw so much money and so many bodies at this $550,000 per incarcerated person per year, again, no one's got that. Um, it's, it, it enabled us to be lousy managers. And now it's going to take some serious medicine to fix it. So, so that, that's my sort of broad answer to your question. If I, had to, if I had to change one main thing I did when I got there, um, I... There was a point where we had the Parade of the Heroes around uh, September 11th for first responders. And I had really been digging deep. And this was early on, it was like July, digging deep into what was going on with staffing and people pulling all these all these games and not doing the jobs they were supposed to do. And I, I, you know, some reporters stuck a camera in my face and I really teed off. And I said that my staff should be ashamed of themselves. And I, that was not nuanced. I should have said some of my staff. Some of my staff were heroes who deserved that parade because they came in every damn day. Or if they did get sick, they came right back to work. And some of them should be ashamed of themselves because they're gaming a system 
and they're gaining it in numbers big enough to make it dangerous for everybody, including their fellow staff members. And I was I lacked nuance on that. And uh, staff told me about it to their credit. They got mm-hmm. my grill and they should have. Mm-hmm. Liz, what do you think? I mean, looking back at, at your your time uh, with the administration, obviously um, not there during this last uh, most terrible period, uh, you know, even the last uh, years of the Blasio administration. Mm-hmm. But are, are there things you'd point to that is it is, you know, are there root things in terms of governance uh, structures? Are yes. there things? Yeah, go ahead, please. The thing that um, that if I had to do it all over again, I would try to figure out how to do it is to institutionalize some of the structures and reforms that we put into place, specifically. Uh, the structures and reforms we put into place to reduce the jail population while preserving public safety. That's quite a trick because, you know, the criminal justice system has no boss. And um, and so everybody is responsible to a different authority. Uh, But there was a period of time during the administration and then quite pointedly in the first six weeks of covid when all those people came together, the courts, the prosecutors, the defenders, the police department, in order to really understand who was going in, how long were they staying, and how could we fairly reduce that population. And I think that that is a crucial job for the city, for the courts, for someone to lead Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And it's a critical matter for justice, obviously. People should not be in, if they shouldn't be in, shouldn't be in as long as they are, but also for safety and for um, everything else that has to do with civic vitality. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing, sort of the institutionalization of that. I wish that I had figured out how to do that. And the second thing I wish I had figured out how to institutionalize or some of these neighborhood safety efforts, some of which are thriving, like the violence interruption uh, network, um, and some of which are more hidden from view, but I think are the greatest promise for the city, uh, like the map sites in uh, these 15 housing developments that bring together residents, 20 city agencies, um, CBOs and others, in a very regular monthly way to identify and solve problems. Mm-hmm. So institutionalization. Yeah. Is- Spe- speaking of that, take one more minute on Vital City and because you're getting at a lot of what you're doing now at Vital City in terms of looking at um, social fabric as the key to safety, uh, you know, the civic life, social infrastructure. Say a little bit more about sort of the theory of the case there and what you're what you're trying to to show and do. Sure. Um, so. uh The way in which we've decided to be safe and what our reflex is, is whenever crime goes up, we send in the police Um, and our default to the police and the criminal justice system. And I say this as a formal federal prosecutor and somebody who has great admiration for the system um, is really backwards uh, because our safety doesn't lie first in the response to the harm. Our safety lies first in building thriving connections in neighborhoods so that 
the harm never happens in the first place. And there is a ton of great evidence about that. Everything from light streets and violent crime goes down 36%. Do summer youth employment and crime goes down and mortality goes down. So there are a million different pieces that if put together could be an incredibly powerful approach uh, to building civic life and therefore never having to go to the last resort of force and of the criminal justice system. And so what Vital City is trying to do um, is to bring these kinds of common sense solutions and make them very tangible, make them feel as uh, as concrete as sending the police. Uh, and there are a million ideas from government, from neighborhood groups, from, uh, from academia, but someone needs to map them onto the budget and operations of the city and link them together. And so that's what Vital City is trying to do. Mm, interesting. And yeah, let me just one sec. And 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 issue one of Vital City is focused on gun violence. We were happy to publish some of the pieces as op eds at Gotham Gazette, but there's a whole lot to read on gun violence specifically there. And then a number of other posts and issue two uh, coming up. Go ahead, Vinny. I just want to point out, you know, we've touched on it a little bit here and there, but, you know, a lot of people focus, as they rightly should, on on how terrible Rikers is and how much of a shame it is to the city is this sort of interesting flip side to that, which is, you know, since the early 90s, all the way up until the pandemic, we were consistently driving down incarceration to about 20% of its rate in New York City versus 1990s when it peaked, uh, while we were simultaneously driving down crime. And that's a lesson I don't think that gets out there enough. So that kind of, there's, there's Liz's point is to refine that so it continues to push down our already lowest incarceration rate in the country. But that already lowest incarceration rate goes hand in hand with our already lowest crime rate. And that only changed during the upheaval of the pandemic. And only yeah, that- just, just, to just to crystallize that, you know, 2017 to 2019 were the lowest incarceration and lowest crime rates in the history of the city. Uh, it's what some criminologists call the second great crime decline. And so what were we doing then that we need to do now to get back there? Mm-hmm. So and, not- and, and, go ahead, Ben. On a limb there. This, we, New York's already got some proof of concept on this, and, and Vital City is trying to refine that and make it better and better as we get lower and lower incarcerated populations. So I wanted to try to get into all this with you. We focus so much on Rikers, which is obviously, as we talked about, the, the you know, such an emergency and such a crisis. There's so much more here to discuss. But in, in just taking, you know, a last couple of, of moments, you know, as you were saying that, Liz, obviously, you know, jumping to mind for me and I'm sure many other people listening was this idea. Yeah. And then the social fabric virtually fell apart during COVID. <laughs> At the same time, though, uh, people with different perspectives uh, in many ways than both of you will talk about things that were already in motion that they say have also made the city less safe, uh, bail reform, um, eh, laws coming through the city council that made police leery about doing their jobs, the chokehold law, AKA the diaphragm law. Um, a number of these other things happening at virtually 
the same time as we started to see society fall apart amid lockdowns, amid school closures, amid mass uh, layoffs, um, people getting sick and dying uh, in many places, especially uh, lower income communities already disadvantaged. Uh, so, you know, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to pull apart there. And I'm sure as researchers, both of you have a lot of, of, of work to do there to try to assess this and not just lean back on saying what we were doing in 2017 to 2019 was perfect and, and working. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think the COVID pulled back the curtain on how fragile so many of these connections were. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's, it is hard to gainsay the fact that the social fabric, how we connect to one another is our first, you know, is the way in which we keep ourselves safe. And um, but the social fabric fell apart. There was an enormous untethering and reweaving that together is a huge and complicated task. No question. Mm-hmm. Vinny, take one more moment. Um, you know, I know you focused a lot on probation, obviously. Uh, you focused a lot on juvenile justice. Anything you want to highlight for listeners here as we close out in terms of something you're focused on, working on that we haven't really got at? Obviously, so many of these other pieces relate to what happens on Rikers Island or what's going to happen in any new jails or any of the the systems that we've been talking about. But um, anything you want to just, um, you know, point to as something that obviously of the many things we haven't gotten to that you're particularly focused on or, or working on. Yeah. I mean, during the, the years leading up to my time at Rikers, I was working with the de Blasio administration, a bunch of advocacy organizations around parole reform and reducing New York had the highest number of people returned to prison of any state for technical non-criminal violations, missing appointments, drug use, things like that of state parole And when I was commissioner at Rikers, uh, Governor Hochul signed the Less is More Act, which dramatically reduced the ability of state parole officers to lock people up for technical violations. And I I thought that was great. I thought she did a great speech when she did it. But I only thought that was step one. And getting back to what Liz was talking about, step two needs to be we need to capture some of the hundreds of millions of dollars that got spent locking people up for technical violations and put them into the kinds of supports that are going to help these folks when they come out of prison to thrive and not reoffend. And that's the way you achieve public safety, not just by taking punishment away, but by taking punishment away and adding the kinds of community cohesion and supports that make it work for for people in neighborhoods that are disproportionately impacted by incarceration. All right. I'm I'm going to even a little further over, just take one more minute each though on this, because I wanted to get to this. I'm sorry I didn't, but there, there's been a lot of attention on this idea that when you offer alternatives to incarceration or you don't lock as many people up on uh, parole violations, that there is um, this, this nonprofit network, basically there's city agencies and there's the nonprofits that the city contracts with that are just not able to make it work, that there's just too many people falling through the cracks or there's uh, too many bureaucratic hurdles or whatever it might be. I know I'm opening up a whole new avenue, but maybe each name one thing or one lesson or one piece of advice for for people in government now around making this, this system work better so that 
we aren't seeing uh, as many repeat offenders because, you know, that people aren't necessarily getting the services they need when they're getting a, a chance to have community support or they're getting a chance for a nonprofit to help them find employment or whatever it might be. Is there something at the root of of the challenges there that needs to be addressed? Are there too many nonprofits they need to be brought under a, a one umbrella? Is the city farming out too much stuff? I don't you know, I'm, I'm obviously just uh, spitballing a little bit, but go ahead, Liz. So such a huge and complicated. I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I would I would just maybe say two things. Uh, one is uh, there's sort of a fundamental flaw in the way in which uh, people are people get services or the decisions are made to put people out uh, to release people or not. Um, and what kind under what conditions they're released, we engage in this magical thinking that somehow our bail laws will keep us safe. Our bail laws have nothing to do with safety. They have to do with return to court. So unless judges have a way to be able to assess uh, a threat to public safety, they have no way to set conditions that will stop reoffending. And we have seen very, very successful other systems, which have both brought down the jail population um, and brought down crime, and yet used a threat to public safety as one of the standards that a, a judge can use. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is a governance issue, which is, so now you have a whole group of people who quite rightly, are released on some kinds of conditions. Um, Again, how you assess what are the services or supports or other things that they need in order to uh, not reoffend, because that's what everybody is concerned about, even though we both say it and don't say it because the law doesn't, that's not part of our law. Um, I think is an important thing to do and really keeping our eye on what helps people live a productive life. Um, We have a ton of science on it. Vinny knows a lot more about this than I do, Um, but there is a ton of science on it. And we have some very, very good examples from across the country of how uh, it's been organized and deployed, but we're not that organized or deployed here. Final word for you, Vinny. Yeah, I want to say, I think the, 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 the subtext of your questions is flawed. Um, and I think that derives a lot from media coverage rather than from data. From 1992 to 2020, we had a very, very, very sharp decline in all forms of crime in New York City and a very, very sharp decline in incarceration and some increase in funding to community groups that help people turn their lives around. I think we've actually shown over a long period of time that that's a pretty decent formula and I think it can be improved. And I think I'm a big supporter of Vital City because Liz really crafts this about as well as anybody I know. But it's not that we've had this verklempt bunch of community providers and people are increasingly doing bad stuff. People are decreasingly doing bad stuff as we put more money into services, supports, and opportunities, I think we need to do that better than we do. I think it's very entrepreneurial now and not well enough planned and certainly doesn't involve the communities themselves and helping to craft those supports. 
more driven by bureaucrats and nonprofit leaders. And I think Liz is on to something with MAP and Vital City. But I think it's a success story that doesn't come across as a success story because there's still going to be a number of failures that get highlighted in ways that make the public think it's a failure. Mm. All right. Uh, a, a good point to leave it on. And I appreciate you challenging the, pre- the premise of my question. I also want to say, as we close out here with Elizabeth Glazer and Vincent Chiraldi, I also, you know, I interview a lot of people. I really appreciate that on multiple occasions in this conversation, you both talked about things that you wish you had done differently or think were mistakes. And that is even when I ask the question of people, they often won't give an actual answer. So I, pre- I appreciate that. And that is, uh, as part of a thoughtful conversation. And, and I appreciate that and the rest of this conversation. So thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, ben. Thanks, and I've been, I've been speaking with Elizabeth Glazer, the founder of Vital City, a new policy venture, who was also previously the director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, among other roles, and Vincent Chiraldi, an adjunct professor at the Columbia School of Social Work and senior fellow at the Columbia Justice Lab, previously commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation, and of the Department of Correction, among other roles. Thank you both again, and be well. 